Welcome back, listener, to the Modern History HSC Podcast, your personal guide to understanding the modern world around us. Welcome back, listener, to the Modern History HSC Podcast. We have got a special guest on today, Mr. Dr. Jacob Berg. And I'm going to be completely honest, we did spend a couple of minutes talking about how we were going to introduce um, Mr. Berg or Jacob. So if I switch between the two, that's all, all completely my fault. But he is an expert in what he is going to talk about and he's reached out to speak and give some insight into the core study. So how are you going, Dr. Berg? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you going? Yeah, no, I'm going fantastic. Um, so to start off with, I've got a couple of questions before we get into the nitty-gritty to yep. ask Dr. Berg. Um, how did you find yourself teaching history in the first place? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I, um, I started out at school doing ancient and modern history, um, have always had a, a, a real keen interest in particular uh, European history and then more specifically World War II history. Um, I did that at school, did reasonably okay, you know, with a fair bit of rote learning the night before and things like that. I wouldn't recommend that, but I, I did reasonably okay. Um, and then when I finished school, I um, was given a photograph of my grandfather who fought for the Finnish army on the side of the Nazis in World War II. And I was really confused why my grandfather would have fought for the Nazis and um, sort of a little bit taken back by that. And so I pursued a little bit of, you know, independent research on that and got really fascinated with the concept of um, ideology, sort of indoctrination, propaganda, uh, nationalism, these kind of big core sort of like topics and ideas. Um, and so then I thought um, I would become a history teacher um, and I went to university, um, obviously studied um, modern history and ancient history at university and geography, um, but I didn't know which one I was going to major in. And so I went to, I went to uh, Rome, I went to the Colosseum and I stood in, in the Colosseum and I was kind of like, and then I went to <laughs> not, not not everything it was cracked up to be, hey? Yeah, well, in my opinion, <laughs> and then and I went to um and then I went to the, the Normandy D-Day beaches and we sat on a couple of old German bunkers. Um we had uh, like a bit of a morning tea there, and um I was just like absolutely enthralled with the history behind that. Um, and so I knew I would major in modern history at that point. And so um, haven't really looked back as a, as a teacher. And then as I sort of progressed through my career as teaching, um, opportunities have presented themselves for me to continue further study and then do my PhD, um, which I've just finished not that long ago. That's a really interesting teacher origin story that like you literally were at that crossroad and you're like, I'm just going to go to the places that I'm going to be talking about. I'm just going to soak it in. And yeah. just see what feels right. Yeah. 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 No, that's really cool. It's a good strategy, I think, because uh, generally the stuff that you, you really get gravi you gravitate towards is the stuff that you're interested in. So there's no better way to actually figure out where my interests lied. Yeah. And you said that then you were able to pursue to go on to doing your PhD. So for yeah. kids who are listening, um, like, for example, I haven't done a PhD or a master's, but as you're continuing to 
So you might do your double degree or like your bachelor's degree. And then on from that, you can keep studying and specializing. And you go from writing essays to a PhD is more like a chosen question or work. But I'm not going to steal your thunder, doctor. So you tell us what was the question that you had to dig into? Yeah, so my PhD sort of evolved out of a few of my other sort of research uh, projects that I did in my undergraduate teaching degree. So in my undergraduate teaching degree, I did a unit um, called HUMS 301, which was kind of like an independent research task. And I looked at Nazi propaganda. And then as a result of completing, I suppose, a major essay on Nazi propaganda, I then got a little bit more interested in that field and I started to understand a little bit more of the historians and the literature that surrounded that topic and then and then dug dug further in. Um, I did my honours uh, thesis on uh, Nazi propaganda, in particular a group called the Sturmabteilung or the SA and um, I'm sure you guys who are studying Year 12 Modern History would be familiar with the brown shirts and um, I looked at how they were represented in propaganda posters. Uh, and then as a stepping stone, these kind of like formulated a bit of a path for me. And then the next logical step was to do some research into not just posters, but how was propaganda used with the SA and the Sturmabteilung um, to indoctrinate the masses, essentially. And so I, most historians sort of stopped their history at 1934 with the Night of the Long Knives. Mm. Um, but I continued the narrative, uh, much like Daniel Zemans, who's another historian working in the field, and we argue, or I would argue, that the essay continued in their importance beyond 1934 all the way up until the end of the Second World War. And yeah. so I looked at how propaganda and their image in particular, their visual image, um, was used as a means to take over space and make spaces political territory. Um, and so that's sort of how I, I, I progressed from sort of like an essay to the PhD. But a PhD in essence is really just a very large essay. Um, the only thing that's really different uh, is the, I suppose, the, the groundwork in which you do to, to support your arguments, it's all backed up with lots of evidence from the from the archives. Yep. But a, a really good essay uh, in Year 12 or Modern History, the best ones follow a very similar structure. They hang on one simple hook that that's your argument and you make your argument clear and then you, you reference your historians to support your argument and your ideas and you reference primary data or material and you show paragraph by paragraph how your argument is supported by that evidence um and so really it's essentially just a much bigger version my introduction for my phd was something like twenty five thousand words um your uh, kids your, are just like sweating as soon as he said that yeah, like, <laughs> what um, that, that's the whole essay that i've normally asked to do just the intro yeah wow <laughs> yeah so um you know it's uh it's yeah it was it was a big task but a, but a good one yeah. Um, so let's get into the nitty gritty of what you found in your research that you did. It's, it is a really interesting take because now that you do mention it, after the Night of the Long Knives, if you're watching any sort of documentary or if you're following the prescribed textbooks, it all becomes about the SS from, that, from that point. 
or like maybe the German army itself to like a lesser extent. Yeah. Um, and there is in fact, like, have you seen the Netflix series, uh, the inner circle of evil before perhaps? I, I am aware of it. I don't think I can recall watching it, but I'm That's aware. Right. There's, there is this one little tagline that is referenced in there after the episode talking about the night of the long night saying that the essay is kind of held on and preserved for ceremonial purposes. Yeah. Is that the crux of your argument or does it go beyond that? Yeah, it goes way beyond that. Um, okay, well, I'm very interested. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would argue there's, there's a whole nother level um, that people don't even think about. I mean, a lot of people refer to them as the, the curtain to the Nazi regime. They're the pretty face at the back, but they're a backdrop, and then nothing more. Um, this, this, this kind of idea was pioneered a little bit more by Bruce Campbell back in the early '90s. Um, for those referring to historians, Bruce Campbell in 1993 um, first argued for their importance in English. He was the first English like kind of like historian to, to mention this. And then in 2017, Daniel Siemens um, wrote a new biography, or sorry, not a biography, a monograph on stormtroopers. And he showed just how important they were politically, even after 1934, um, all the way up until the end of the war. Um, but what he did not deal with was how uh, important they were in terms of their image and in how important that image was in winning mass support to the Nazi regime. And so I discovered um, a whole range of different things and everything I discovered centres around this concept and this is a new concept and something that I think for the listeners um, can really potentially set uh, you apart in the, in the HSC in terms of introducing new ideas and you can have, I'll make sure I reference the historians here to back it up so they don't just think you're making up something random. Yeah. But um, this concept of territorialization. So this idea of acquiring territory and making territory out of simple spaces. And so I want you to picture, um, for all those listening, your local supermarket um, and the car park at that local supermarket. I want you to picture the, the car spaces there. It's filled with cars. And at this point in time, it is probably functioning as a space for cars to park. Um, and... This is um, good. It's what it should be. But if a political group was to all of a sudden come into that space, block off the entryway to that car park, hang up all a bunch of banners and signs presenting a particular ideology, then that car park no longer functions as a car park. It's reappropriated or it's transformed into a political stage. And so a car park is all of a sudden transformed into a stage of power where they're emphasising their territory. This is our territory now. And whether we have permission or not, this is our zone and it's marked by these symbols and these banners and our uniform and all these kind of things. Yeah. And so what I do is, is in my thesis and any of the publications that have resulted, is I show how these spaces were used to build a national community, to transform Germany from a neutral space into a Nazi territory. Um, and, this, and this 
outplays in many different ways. And so um, it depends on, on, on how long you'd like me to spend on this one. How, how long would you like me to spend on, on this question? <laughs> no, no, go. Flesh, flesh it out as much as possible. That's the beauty of the podcast is that people can go forward, they can rewind. Let's yep. get into the nitty gritty. All right, great. Well, so essentially you've got roughly 13 dot points in the in the HSC syllabus that deals in the core topic. Um, and I think I think what I'm about to present will probably um, answer, if not directly explicitly, at least implicitly, 11 of those dot points, okay? Um, and so when we think about what territoriality is, I want to I want to introduce you to this this human geographer by the name of Robert Sack. Um, in 1983, he defined territoriality to be a strategy for influence or control. Um, which he then extended to include the concept of human territoriality. And human territoriality is what he defined uh, as an attempt to affect, influence or control the actions and interactions of people by asserting and, and enforcing control over a geographical area. Okay, so in 1983, Robert Sack, so if you're going to refer to him in any sort of um, essay, that's Robert Sack, 1983. Um, now, the shaping of the Nazi empire, if I can use that word, began with this kind of like territorial dominance and the restructuring of German society at home. And the essay imagery and its territorialization of Germany shaped Germany into this kind of like political territory. Um within the geographical borders of the Reich, okay, so like within Germany itself. Now, the Nazi vision for the Reich um, was one that was a little bit more, um, it was trying to be all-encompassing. So it really wanted to gather all people under this, this idea of, um, I'm sure you've heard of it if you've been studying modern history, this Volksgemeinschaft or a national community. Yeah. And they wanted to restructure society under this, which had this kind of like hyper-nationalist, hyper-masculine um, sort of like ruling out the class structure, really developing this core nucleus of a homogenous society, I suppose. And what ended up happening is you got this powerfully geographical notion of territoriality which, take, which took place. Now, not all essay imagery was designed as a means of territorialising space or, or making space uh, to be Nazi territory. But it did, in effect, enforce a political power. And so propaganda imagery and the physical presence of the SA in the streets, in front of buildings, you know, all these kind of uh, public places aimed at reshaping and defining what it meant to be German. They wanted to take someone who was German and then present what it actually meant to be proper German. So it's this kind of like we're going to redefine what it means. And now um, the Nazis themselves sort of justified their, their violent actions in sort of like the, the late 20s and the early 30s. Um, and now, you know, for example, um, Wilhelm Stapel in 1930 said, he was talking about Berlin, he said there are too many Slavs and all too many altogether uninhibited uh, East European Jews 
who have been mixed into the population of Berlin. Yeah. And so what I want you to think about here is these sort of like hyper-nationalist Germans, these thinkers are saying, hold on a second, we've got our city, Berlin, and all of a sudden we've got all these mixed things coming in. And um, by and large, they were arguing that Germany was being invaded by a parasitic subhuman race, namely, which they would call the Jews in, in scare quotes. Um, and this is important because um, that the, the idea or the, the notion of inculcating or indoctrinating in the, in the population that a threat was growing in Germany, um, this, this provided kind of fertile soil and ground for overlaying um, the Nazis defeating this enemy um, who have invaded this kind of German territory. And as a result, they were, they were trying to present themselves as almost the victors or the or the saviors of, of, a, of a geographical space. And so even before the Nazis came to power, so pre-1933, everything was um, framed not only in racialistic terms, but also in terms of space and territory and reobtaining national lands back and um, and getting those streets back from those who had supposedly overrun them with a, with an inferior race. And, and so if, if I can not to cut off your flow too much, and then this is relating to like the the feeling of the the stab in the back, the the literal losing of the lands from the first world war. Um, would you go as far to say it also has to do with the fact that German like unification is also not very old in itself, and that maybe the average German is like, I don't even know what it really means to be German. Like we just became German and then we lost the First World War. Like, are we losers? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, particularly, you know, um, the, if we if we really want to talk about the first time that Germany ever actually heard of this concept of being German, because as you say, it is a new concept, right? Um, mm. The first time they ever heard about that was in the Napoleonic Wars, and and all of a sudden France comes through, and they they weren't they weren't um, you know, they weren't arguing or, or, or presenting themselves as as being loyal to a particular leader here. They were they were, they were saying that they were Frenchmen, yep. you know. And so as as the as Napoleon and his armies moved all the way to you know Moscow and back again, um, they really started to realize that there's this this idea of a nation. And then so with German unification and the rise of Prussia and you know under the Kaiser in in his in his first speech going to war um the kaiser you know on, on his balcony he said um if i can remember this quote correctly he he basically said um i don't see class i don't see politics i just see a german nation and this sort of really rallied this idea of a, a national people which was only then further solidified with this kind of like um in german it's the frontgemeinschaft or this kind of like frontline community where they were in the trenches of World War One, they bound together, and there was no such thing as class struggle. They were all soldiers on an equal footing, serving the fatherland. Um, that's how they would have presented it. And so, yeah, the Nazis absolutely, um, you know, catapulted off that idea and then extended it further, and then added it into German territory once back. Um, yeah. And that's really quite something that's really important, and, and something for the listeners is to understand that. You know, the Nazis are, are never really good at coming up with things on their own. 
what they are very good at doing is taking old ideas and mm. modernizing them. They're, they're, you know, let's not give them more credit than is due. They, they, they're, they're not very good at coming up with their own ideas. Um, they, they generally take an idea and, and, and enhance it or modernize it, but not actually come up with it. Um, now, Goebbels. In 1932, Joseph Goebbels, the, the Minister of Propaganda, um, he kind of pitched this idea of a parasitic race against this kind of like a natural German population in German. It's called the Bordenstandig. Um, and in, in a way began to kind of like demarcate, I suppose, society, not only racially but politically, nationally and spatially. So listen to this quote that he says in 1932. He says... Uh, start quotations, those nomadic, rootless, international Jews who have nothing more to do with Berlin than that they carry out their parasitic existence there at the cost of the hardworking Indigenous population, close brackets. Hmm, and so, very direct. <laughs> I don't know if you can see what he's doing here, but he's playing off uh, a parasitic, what he would argue is a parasitic race, but he's linking it to Berlin, right? Because in 1932, everything was happening in Berlin. He's linking it to Berlin. And he's saying that these hardworking, authentic Germans in Berlin are being undermined by this Jewish influence, which is just deteriorating them. And so this concept here of our nation, our territory, and not everyone within its borders belong essentially um, to us Um it really kind of created a justification for the violent and murderous actions that would that would precede, or sorry, sorry, um, follow um, the Nazis coming into power. They're really setting the stage, as it were. And Ricardo Bavai, he was one of my PhD supervisors. He, he's at the University of St Andrews. He talks about how the SA, in particular, used to march on the streets. Um, marching on the streets through communist districts. And when they marched on the street, they turned the street, which is a space for traffic, and he, they, they marched on the street with their flags and their drums and their uniforms. They claimed the street as their own, and then they marched provocatively through communist areas, and they referred to them as the red districts, and so this idea of territoriality comes in. It's like a space where the communists live and yeah. we're going to go into those spaces and take control of those spaces, reassert their control over those spaces. And in a very a very specific way, like Thomas Ballester in 1989 argued, um, what they were doing is they were setting a stage for power. They were bucking the system and demonstrating against the ruling authorities of the Weimar Republic and saying, this isn't your street, this is actually our street, and we're taking it back right now. Um, and so what you see in the early Nazi regime is how the SA was used as sort of like a propaganda instrument to reclaim space and territory and emphasise that this is actually Nazi territory. Um, and so then what happens is, in 1933, the Nazis come to power. So after the seizure of power in 1933, Germany simply did not become Nazi territory overnight. Like, it's not like the Nazis came to power and all of a sudden, like, boom, here we go. we got Nazi Germany right here. That's not how it happened. The SA needed to be involved in this kind of, like, 
day-by-day conversion, transforming the body politic or the population to be aligned with the regime. And this is where we get this sort of like grassroots level of a building of a Volksgemeinschaft of this national community. It happened at the grassroots level. The powerful control of public spaces was a geographical strategy, I would argue, to control people and things by controlling area. Does that make sense? So you control the area and therefore you control what people do within that area. And so SA Images and the SA Men on the Street found a place at the centre of Nazi politics in in their attempts to coerce and convince and control German society. And so, you know, you get all sorts of different propaganda images and posters and, you know, they often played the the Nazis against the communists and the communists were always pictured with rifles and the Nazis were always pictured as, like, really uniform and orderly but ready to fight. So what they were doing is they were presenting the communists as the aggressors and therefore presenting themselves as the defenders. We're the authentic defenders here. Um, which is really important to understanding the politics of kind of like this sort of like Machtergreifung period, the, the key term there being, the, you know, the consolidation period. Um, so the SA propaganda during the site or the, the time leading up to 1933 was characterised by a strategy of public territorial conquests. Street marches represented that physical takeover and symbolic occupation of space, um, which in many cases also ended in street battles and fighting, Um, you know, the beating sound of jackboots hitting the cobblestone roads accompanied by these baritone songs of, you know, professing German freedom and becoming part of the Nazis' visual currency during the Weimar Republic. This was all really, really important. Um, And this kind of idea of a closed appearance, you know, they're all wearing the same uniform, they're all wearing, you know, the same insignia, they're wearing, they're carrying the same banners. All of this sought to foster this idea of a unity, a unification of the German people. Yeah. Um, and so in one particular 1933 uh, Nazi propaganda publication, um, it's titled Ein Kampf um Deutschland, which basically sort of translates to, you know, sort of one fight or one struggle for Germany. Um, and they pictured the SA next to the communists. And just as I spoke about before, the communists were dressed as, you know, weaponized and aggressive and almost unruly. And, and like just the really, rebels. Yeah, the like rebels. Enemies at the gate. Are depicted marching in uniform with their flags. And what's really funny about this is in the background, even though the original image pictured them in a town, the, the, the buildings are removed and they, they replace them with trees. Because therefore they they make it out to be an organic movement, you know. To go against the Nazis is to go against nature. This is a natural thing. How mm. dare you go against the natural order? Um, which is a really funny pitch against the communists. But um, you know, so in early 1933, the SA set about with you know the April first boycotts um, and you know public displays of violence to really transform the public space from something that looked like um, neutral territory to become something that was German territory. Um, Really, really fascinating. But 
it's not really until we start to understand the extent to which they use terror to consolidate power. So, for example, one of the one of the key facts that I think I would use in my HSC uh, essay when talking about um, Nazi consolidation tactics. Within 1933, since the Nazis came to power, by the end of the year, there were over 240 torture chambers in Berlin alone. So 240 mm. torture chambers in Berlin alone and over 11 different concentration camps in Berlin alone. In Berlin, yeah, wow. So they're really trying to, you know, emphasise if you stand against us, if you don't conform, we're throwing you in there. And this becomes something called um, experiential propaganda. It's propaganda that's experienced, not just viewed. And so, you know, in one particular concentration camp, um, you know, it was presented and, and placed right in the middle of the street, essentially. So people who were walking by would hear these screams and torture and, you know, and all of a sudden it, it generated this experiential notion of fear and it, it created this idea of if I go against the Nazis, that's where I'm going to end up and I don't want to end up there because I can hear it. And so I'm going to I'm going to conform. I did not want to end up in there. Um, yeah. And this is obviously heightened by um, street attacks and suburb attacks. So, for example, there's an event which took place from the 21st to the 26th of June, 1933. It's it's in it's known as the Kupernicke which in Germany is sort of like the the Kupernick Blood Week. Um, and basically there were over 500 people tortured by the SA themselves um, in Berlin from um, a, a Sturm group called Murder Sturm 33 from Charlottenburg, and they murdered 23 people um, over those five days um, in that one suburb. They just terrorised it. Um, and this was this idea of not only claiming that red space back to be Nazis, um, but then also extending their terror to say if you're going to be communist, if you're going to be against national socialism, then you're going to be tortured, you're not going to survive, you know, conform to the Nazis basically. Yeah. Um, so are these, just, I've got a bit of a question. Yeah. Um, so these attacks that you're saying, they're at this stage, so just after 1933, are they all being targeted as people openly declaring themselves you know, saying that they're a communist or, or a Jew? Are we in the stage of people being labelled with the Star of David? And you're talking about the territory. Uh, are the ghettos being set up at this point or is that sort of stuff coming a bit later? Yeah, so that sort of stuff would come in later, um, sort of like the introduction of the, of the Jewish Star, for example, and, and the establishment of the, you know, extermination camps and the ghettos and um, those sorts of things come in um later um you know um if if i can recommend a book for those things it would be um you know everyday life in Thuringienstadt um by anya haikova uh is probably the most recent um publication in that space that i think i would really encourage you as um students to seek out um, um some of my students last year used some of her information in, in their HSC exam and, and did quite well. So I could um, I can definitely um, uh, you know encourage that. Um, but no it was it wasn't necessarily 
against people that the Nazis labeled. It was more or less you had these sort of like Reichsbanner, you know, um, KPD fighters. You had all these sort of like specific groups that were political groups still left over from the rise to power where the Nazis were trying to become to power and this sort of political system where you had these paramilitary organisations fighting each other. They became known entities and known districts and known areas. And so the Nazis were doing a day-by-day conversion after 1933, hitting these areas and then taking them over and making them their own. And we could see that by the way they marched you know, through the streets. So, for example, on the Tuesday, the 12th of February, 1933, there was a photograph taken and, and published in the, the Nazi, you know, newspaper, Volkischer Biobachter, and um, it's a propaganda march of an SA group sort of marching through the north of Berlin. And, um, you know, Eve Rosenhaft would probably be a historian I would look up here. She has a book called Beating the Fascists, which looks at how the communists attacked the Nazis. Um, but what's really important to note is the the subtitle for that that particular image. Um, it talks about um, how the brown columns march through the red north, the north of Berlin at this point in time in 1933, early 1933, was known as the red north by the Nazis. Right. It had a communist flavor to it already. It was working class lots of factories, lots of, you know, working-class people. And so the the Nazis really hit that area hard after coming to power and they wanted to, to almost assert their victory over that space by marching through it and taking over it. And very cleverly what they did was by saying we're marching through the Red North like quite freely and openly, they're basically stating the Red North is no longer red. We've taken it. This is our space. This is a victory march. Yeah. And they published it in their newspaper. And this is this is the incredible thing about propaganda. They published it in their newspaper because that way people who weren't at the event or could not witness the march, the effect of that march was extended to viewers around the nation. And so people, whether they understood or not, really start to see this idea of, well, the Nazis are actually owning Berlin. Berlin yeah. is now Nazi territory. Yeah, the, um, all the territory and the landscape is literally changing day by day now. Yeah. Yeah. And so this hits a sort of like a peak. It sort of dies down in 1934 with the Night of the Long Knives. Um, you know, the SA, Hitler really wants to remove the radical nature because at this point in time they become a bit of a threat to the Nazi party. Um, the Nazi party is capped, their memberships are capped, but for the SA, their memberships are not capped. And so by 1934, I think there was something like 4.5 million members in the SA nationwide. Um, mm. And so they're rivaling the party at this point and Hitler's quite scared that, you know, they could eventually take over and actually be the power, not the party itself, because it is this kind of polycratic system that the Nazis set up, and this is really important to understand. But for the sake of talking about territoriality and, and, and putting a new spin on your HSC that will give you a leg up over the vast majority of the state, which won't be looking at the most recent research necessarily, um, what was, what's really important is to think about by 1935, the SA reassert themselves, um, and they do it in these highly provocative propaganda 
but anti-Semitic displays in the summer of 1935, so July 1935. Mm. They do these drives, these propaganda drives in in, in German. They're basically in trucks with pictures all around the sides of the trucks. In German, the word is Lustkraftwagen. So they, they go, they drive around the streets in these Lustkraftwagen painted with these pictures. And they basically assert this kind of exclusionary practice. So the, the idea of a national community is twofold. On the one hand, it's inclusive. Everyone who is Aryan and German authentically German, you're welcomed in and we are united. But at the very same time, if you're not on the in, you're on the out and it's exclusionary and they attack those who are excluded. And so these streets, these SA trucks are driving around with images of distasteful caricatures of Jewish people seducing German girls and, you know, you know, the Catholic Church is bombarded because they were opposed to the Nazis and, you know, all of these really hyper-ideological images that are painted on the sides of these trucks and they're driven around and marches are taken place and, and it's very sort of anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish, um, anti-class uh, sort of attacks. But by driving on the streets, they're presenting themselves as a moving propaganda piece and again, reclaiming the street, right? They're, yeah. they're making the street their own, which is really quite fascinating in, in many ways because you've got to understand at this point as Jeffrey Hirth, so that's another key historian you should look up, um, he's got a book out on Nazi propaganda, in particularly anti-Semitic Nazi propaganda, uh, Jeffrey Hirth. Uh, I think it's 2006. Um, he states that by sort of the late 30s, early 40s, one in 40 Germans owned a car. Right? Yeah. So we're we're talking here about a pedestrian nation. Like this isn't this isn't like everyone's driving in their cars. This is people walking on the streets, standing in front of bus stops, waiting at the tram stations, and so presenting a very visual image in the public space, both deteriorating the view of Jewish civilians and heralding the view of Nazi Germany was a very powerful means of extending ideological ideas into the public space. And when people were going about their daily routines, they were being indoctrinated by the visual. Yeah, just like bombarded either consciously or unconsciously. And, yeah, you make a really good point, the fact that it wouldn't be like on the streets today, even though the country towns that we're teaching in don't have a lot of cars going through it. But if you're thinking about it in the city, and Berlin's a massive city, that it's not competing with all the other cars and stuff that are going on. You just have this, this fleet of trucks with these massive banners just going through. It feel like a show going on all the time. That's right. A show is a really good way to describe it. It carries what I, I said in my thesis as a carnivalesque atmosphere. But we're talking, we're talking in the days pre, you know, really pre-TV, we're talking radio is just coming into inception, cinema is just coming into its inception. And so what would capture the, the imagination and the, and, the, and the entertainment factor? This idea of going through the streets with brass bands and drums and, you know, wearing bright, colourful uniforms with banners flagging and, you know, them singing these songs about, um, you know, Jewish 
uh, threats and these songs about German freedom and how we need to rid the Germany of the Jews. Like this stuff's entertaining. And so mm. what's really fascinating is a lot of the time they did these displays was on a Sunday afternoon because people had gone to church or done what their thing in the morning. Sunday afternoon, it's not the working week. Everyone's at home or they're out in the streets playing and all of a sudden these guys would come driving through or marching through and just capture their imagination. And Michael Wilt in his book, The Dynamics um, of the Volksgemeinschaft or The Dynamics of, um, I can't remember the dynamics of, I can't remember the exact title, but it's basically the dynamics of something and the Volksgemeinschaft 1930, um, from 1933. He talks about whether you agreed with the Nazis, disagreed with the Nazis, or were neutral, if you were there on the street watching, you were essentially enabling anti-Semitic policy yeah. because without an audience, this stuff means nothing. So. Either way, if you were there, you were an accomplice in Nazi anti-Semitic politics. Um, really kind of like scary stuff to think about and stuff to think about as teachers as we talk to our students, I suppose, about the nature of, you know, you know, the, the idea of, you know, evil persists when good men stand by or good people stand by and do nothing. You know, yeah. what do we do when someone's being bullied or something like that? Like, do you do you intervene? Well, if you don't, are you equally guilty? Like yeah. question mark? What do you think? You know what I mean. So that's a it's a really interesting thing. But the I want to hit something um, really quickly because I know I'm speaking for a long time here, and I apologise for that. I've got about ten minutes left. So um, no, that's all good. Yep. What are the what are your what are the most important points you would like to add on in the last ten minutes, and we can save a few minutes for the for the lightning round. Yeah, I suppose we've talked a lot about this kind of controlling this idea of you know. Um, terror and repression in the first year. Um, we've talked about essentially then you could also link that into the impact of the Nazi regime on life in Germany in general. Um, mm. So the Nazis were very big at stamping out through the SA, through violence, any kind of competing organisations and they publicly humiliated them. Um, you know, the, we've talked about the nature of Nazi ideology in terms of this idea of, creating a Volksgemeinschaft and building a national community and excluding those who weren't included. Um, we talk about this idea of consolidating power in 1933 and 1934. I suppose, I suppose one of the biggest things I'd probably want to, I probably want to talk about is how this extended not just into cities, but, but into the countryside um, because they really did gather and attempted to create a Volksgemeinschaft or this idea of a national community in both the rural and the urban setting because they wanted to get every corner of the Reich. And so how they did this was in the Reichsparteitag or the, or the Congress, the Nuremberg Congress, um, you could, in particular, we could focus on 1936. The SA come marching through the street on the Sunday, 90,000 SA men marching through the street, all singing these songs, um, but what's really important here is they're, they're carrying these standards, right, these banner standards. And at the top of those standards is where they come from, Nuremberg, Munich, Dresden, Hamburg, Berlin, you know. Um, you got all the, all the different regions where, the, where the, the SA supposedly come from. But by marching through at this particular time, what are they doing? 
Like, why would they care about putting a name up on their standard? Well, they're emphasizing and almost asserting the fact that that particular region has been conquered. That particular region is Nazi. So they're yeah. emphasizing this idea, even though it wasn't true. Like, we know that so many people didn't get along with the Nazis and so many people resisted them or, or, or weren't, it wasn't like everyone came over to this idea of a Volksgemeinschaft. Ian Kershaw um, would be a great historian to quote at this point. He he really talks about the effectiveness of Nazi propaganda and and how it didn't it really failed in in sort of winning people over to this idea of a Volksgemeinschaft. But the Nazis nonetheless still tried to present it as them owning all of Germany. And how did they do it? They did it through having bandits with um, standards with these names at the top of it, and then accompanying that was images of Germany and they had the they had Nuremberg in the center and then from every corner of the Reich they would put photographs of SA men marching from their regions to come to Nuremberg the heart of the Nazi movement and so they're basically saying everyone around the nation is now for the Nazis and that's what we're going to present which therefore ultimately makes it really difficult to challenge and Elon Confino, uh, he wrote a book called um, A World Without Jews, and he talks about how they did this idea, but beyond that, they also presented the idea that the Jews were everywhere. But the thing is, less than, what was it, 3% of Germany was actually of Jewish origin. Mm. We're talking small numbers here, but the way that the Nazi propaganda machine worked is they presented it in your face at every single opportunity and so you felt as if a supposed threat was actually there when really they were quite minimal in terms of their actually numerical number, right? So the Nazis were very good at generating or creating this fear and establishing this fear in a way that I suppose did not actually play out in reality. And so... How would they how would they convince people? They would march through rural towns and rural areas. They would print their images in children's school books, in particular, of the SA men marching through the street. And this stuff's all the way up to the war years we're talking. SA men are still pictured in school books um, of marching through the street. And so even the youth are sitting there thinking about what does it mean to be German? It means to be a part of the SA. It means to be part of a unified Germany where we all wear the same uniform. We march resolutely through the street. We conquer territory. We're against the Jews and we really are a uniform, homogenous society. Um, And so I suppose to to sort of wrap up, the Nazis used the image of the SA to shape and mould German space into Nazi territory by affecting, influencing and controlling the actions and interactions of everyday Germans through highly aggressive propaganda displays and the SA kind of ostracised and excluded minorities from German society, both in rural and urban spaces, territorialised the most most remote regions of the country, which was then given visual expression through images that were pictured and put around the public spaces to extend their physical existence. Um, And so in the final years of the war, The SA, even up to the end of the World War II, the SA visually demonstrated this kind of diehard fanaticism to the movement 
to encourage the folk or the, the, the people to fight to the bitter end. And essay images and, and public visuality, I would argue, aim to control and alter the actions of Germans by occupying public space. And so essay imagery, therefore, stood at the very centre, I would argue, of um, Nazi politics and Nazi territorialization from 1933 to 45. You're just blowing my mind. <laughs> it's like, like <laughs> honestly. Uh, and for one point, just sitting there when you were talking about going out to the rural areas, yeah. there just seems to be, and not to reduce what you're saying too much, but there seems to be a lot of the Nazis faking it till you make it. Would yep, you say that, that that's fair enough to say? Absolutely. Yeah. That let's just present we're already the victors, we're already conquering, but in reality, um, there's no way for any of these other towns to fact check what's going on due to the limitations of the technology and, and whatnot at the time. 100%. And this is where I think you guys as, as young historians in, in modern history, I think you really need to engage with, you know, the debate of intentionalism versus structuralism. And, you know, was this stuff intended by the Nazis? Was it a set out plan from the start or was it on the fly ad hoc? And my argument would be aligned with Ian Kershaw's, which is I think it's a bit of both. I think they mm. planned some of it, but there's so many cases where they were just ad hoc with what they did and that wasn't working. And, and, and if it was me, I would take the, the cases of like establishing how, how best and most effectively to exterminate the Jewish citizens of, of Europe was, you know, we'll start with, mass shootings and then we'll go to and then we'll go to vans and then we'll go to mass graves and then we'll go to uh, a camp where we can we can actually put more in and you know it's very ad hoc and we're gonna we're gonna see yeah. what works effectively and so you really do need to engage with that debate about intentionalism versus structuralism and if there's any any uh, historians I'd point you to would be Hans Ulrich Tamer and uh, Ian Kershaw would probably be the two that I would probably point you towards in that space. Rightio, Jacob, let's go into our lightning round so you can get off to your other duties. Yep. So first question, most influential figure of the 20th or 21st century? Yeah, this was a really tough one when I was thinking about this. Um, I reckon I would have to say Anne Frank because she's an, uh, a symbol and an emblem for resistance, but even just in terms of her courage, the way that her diaries have been translated and read by millions around the globe, still relevant today. Um, I reckon I reckon she's very influential in 21st, 20, 20th, 21st century. Very good answer. Um, most important date of the last 100 or so years? I'll probably say the 7th of May, which was the end of the war in Europe, in, in Europe, sorry, Second World War in Europe, or the 2nd of September, which was the end of the Second World War. The reason being is because I think that redrew the borders of Europe and the world. It re-established things that still are held today, like the Declaration of Human Rights was driven by the World, world War II and so many things. This really is a flashpoint in history that has changed human society. There was an increase in medical advancements, unfortunately a lot due to the Nazis, but medical advancements, technology, everything sort of changed and shifted after World War II. So I'd probably say the end of World War II. Right, you know, history, does it have cycles or is it a bit of pseudoscience in saying that it has cycles and humans have like this destiny to like repeat the same tragedies over and over and over? 
Well, I would argue like Mark Twain said, history never repeats itself, but it does rhyme. Yeah. I'll so like history, by, history by and large can never repeat itself because an event happened and it happened and that context can never be repeated. But what can happen is very similar context can emerge, which then is a rhyming. So you talk about a rhyming of events, not a, not a repeat. So therefore, I don't think it's cyclical in nature. I think it's, um, it's, it's rhyming in nature. Last question. If you had the power of a time machine, so you somehow figured out how to travel faster than the speed of light and you had the opportunity, would you change a moment in history or would you let sleeping dogs lie? Oh, this is a hard question. I really don't know. Um, I think I think knowing the depravity of humankind and the 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 the, the trouble that we find ourselves in, you know, you just take Russia and Ukraine for, as, a, as a crisis, for example, and we're constantly, as a human race, getting things wrong. Would I then want to intervene previously to prevent some of these things from happening? Yeah, I, I really would. Do I think I have the right to be able to alter that? I don't know. And so it's kind of like I, I, yeah. really, don't, I really don't know about that one. Um, I, think, um, I think that's a really good point of contention and i think it would make a fantastic debate in a year 12 modern class you know would mm. we change history if we could um yeah i think if i did have to change a moment in time it would be i would want to go back with the knowledge i have now to pre-world war one and shape and communicate to the world what will happen if you continue on this nationalist bent and um, and I think the best, just as a bit of a, a random off-topic thing here, but I, I think the best possible um, way to explain World War One and all that kind of stuff is is to look up that if World War One was a bar fight. And oh uh, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think that's just so gold for for talking about. You know, you know, it's really it's really fantastic. But um, yeah, that would be my answer. Changing World War One if you had to, but yeah, you yeah. totally make an excellent point of like, you know, what would the ripple effects be? If you did change something, would you make it like unknowingly make it worse? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So sometimes maybe it is worth just leaving it as it is. So thank you, Jacob or Dr. Berg. This has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for giving up your time. No and problem. I'm sure the listeners will be able to pause, go back, jot down lots of notes, and hopefully set yourself apart in the upcoming HSC. Absolutely. Good luck, guys. I wish you all the best in the HSC. Rightio. Catch you later.